This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. The next slide is the scene I described to you of us driving down the highway. That's some of what it sounded like from the video which Shai Klein Weinstein gathered while escaping with his life in a car together with a small group of friends from the Hamas terrorists attacking the now infamous Supernova Music Festival in Israel on October 7th. The 26-year-old man, originally from Innisfil, just north of Toronto, showed the images a few days ago to students at the Hillel Club at York University, describing how the carefree bohemian outdoor dance party turned into a killing field and how he and some friends managed to survive when nearly 400 others were slaughtered or kidnapped. The rave dance was held in the Negev Desert near Kibbutz Be'eri, beginning at 10 p.m. Raves usually involve staying up all night and dancing and partying, and yes, many took drugs. Klein Weinstein, who goes by Shy Klein professionally, wasn't even planning to go to the rave. He'd never actually been to one before, but when the woman he liked said she was going, he bought last-minute tickets, and a group of eight went down from Tel Aviv in two cars to camp at the open-air site. Klein also brought his two professional cameras with him, and at first he wandered around and took portraits of some of the interesting-looking people at the event. The jewelry makers, a woman who did body painting, couples, security staff, a DJ, and of course photos of his friends and his cousin Mordecai. But when dawn broke on the morning of October 7th and the rockets started firing from Gaza overhead, hundreds and hundreds of rockets, and then gunfire, Klein somehow knew it was time to run. And he credits his survival partly to luck and partly because he acted on instinct. Nobody else heard this sound. I asked my cousin. He's not sure. There's so much going on. I'm not even sure. But when I heard this sound, it made me feel sick to my stomach, more so than I was already feeling. I was already on the edge. I was already nervous. I was already paranoid. And this just made that worse. And I could feel something was happening. This wasn't just rockets. I don't know what. I just felt a really bad, disgustingly sickening feeling inside of me. And I wanted to leave right now and thank God because we were. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Monday, November the 27th, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Shai Klein was born in Canada, grew up in Etobicoke. Later, the family settled in Innisfil, near Barrie, where his mother and younger brother still live. The 26-year-old made Aliyah in April, set himself up in an apartment in Tel Aviv, started Hebrew lessons, and planned to continue working as a professional photographer. The photos he took that day at the music festival brought him back to Canada unexpectedly. He's here on behalf of a new Israeli charity called Faces of October 7th. They're sending survivors of the Hamas attack to speak at university campuses around America, mainly to empower Jewish students, but also to combat rampant disinformation about what really happened that day. Klein admits he is a wreck. 
He's seeing several therapists, just as many of the massacre survivors are doing. He's also dealing with some survivor's guilt. I sat down with him after his talk at Hillel, but first I want to play you a bit of his escape story as he told it to the students, going off-road into a forest, driving over a median, even miraculously avoiding a pair of armed, masked Hamas gunmen just meters away. We make our way towards the highway, passing vehicles rid of the bullets, passing vehicles with bodies in them, passing crashed vehicles. We get onto the highway, and one of the first cars that I see on our side of the road, on the shoulder, facing the wrong way, facing the car, facing us, oncoming, riddled the bullets, driver in the driver's seat, dead, shot in the face. The whole time I'm telling the girls in the back to keep their heads down, I'm telling my cousin to keep his head low. I'm giving him water, or roll him a cigarette. We're going. We see some IDF border patrol on the side of the road, on the opposite side of the highway. We see another group of cars, belongings all over, doors open, bullet holes. Behind one of the cars, a body on the ground, beneath the trunk. We keep going. Less than 200 meters away, we see another car, another silver car, on the right side of the road. We're getting closer. We see next to it two figures, two people beside this car, waving their arms above their heads, doing this as if trying to get us to slow down or stop. And we see these two men have black balaclavas over their heads, black masks. One's wearing jeans, the other wearing cargo pants. One with a tactical vest, the other without. Both are in black t-shirts, both holding rifles. We're parallel to them in the car, a car length away. And we can see clearly one of the men, his hands are covered in blood. And we see two bodies and the driver in the passenger seat, obviously dead. And we only slow down for a split second just to comprehend what we're seeing. And then we speed off again. We tell my cousin to drive and not to stop, to drive fast, drive now. That's what he does. Not even 100 meters past them, not even 200 meters past them. We see another car on the left side of the road, trunk open, belongings all over. And then from left to right on the shoulder of the road, one, two, three, in the middle of the road, bodies, three people dead. We have to drive around them, accidentally run over the legs of one. And from that point on, we keep driving. And now, my chat with Shai Klein. I was very curious. Tell me about your camera that you were using that day. I had two cameras. My work camera, because I wanted to build a portfolio of festivals so I could travel and shoot festivals. I chose a Nikon Z9 with a 70-200, a very expensive camera. I'm sure you might know. $10,000, Canadian. And I had my, my, my Konica, uh, Konica Auto Reflex TC from 1964 that I bought for $6 with a 50mm lens. And the three rolls of film that I bought in Israel cost more than the camera. I believe it. And getting film developed these days must be also very challenging. Yeah. So I had three rolls of film. I had Kodak 200, Cinestill 800T, and Cinestill 50D. And I sh shot each roll unknowingly in chronological order of the order of the festival of the attack. I was watching how you showed the students uh, a bit of the timeline. There's none of you. There's no pictures of you. I'm taking the photos. I know, but did anyone no, no, do no. a selfie with you, or did you take, like... No. Nobody, ever, nobody ever takes my photos. Nobody knows how to take photos. I don't trust them to. I'm happy to have my photo taken. I'm always behind the camera. In the car, you were showing what you described, yeah. driving up past dead bodies, and someone was taking video behind your head. My friend Tell Ellie. I, I gave my friend Ellie the phone camera. I'm like, here, film this, film what's going on, because I need both hands to take photos. And so she started filming. When you're under attack, and I speak for, from experience, having covered three wars and, and, and having gone through Africa yeah. myself as a journalist, foreign correspondent, how did you have the presence of mind to do that while you were trying to save your life? 
When you're exposed to trauma, your brain goes through a lot of things, a lot of chemicals, a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions, and some people, let's say if you grew up in a really safe environment, don't know how to process all that, you fight, flight, or freeze, and you freeze. I did not grow up in a safe place. So those feelings were not new to me. Also, as a photographer, I'm able to look at things from many perspectives, to analyze things and see what's going on from here, from there, and make decisions based on ifs and buts and other things. And I knew after the first rockets went off, mm -hmm. I have to keep taking photos, even if it's only of people. My initial thoughts were, everybody's still laughing and joking with each other, even though there's absolute chaos and panic. I'm going to take portraits. I like to take portraits with the chaos behind them, because that's a good contrast, a smile with chaos in the background. And that's what I did. I know war correspondents and war photographers, they see through the lens and they do the calculations about, you know, f-stops and whatever they need to do. But, so they're not looking at what they're really taking until later. So you mentioned that starting on Monday when you got your film process, this is after, how did you start, now that you're looking at what you took, how different is it to see? I don't this? remember taking any of the photos. I was using a film camera from 1964. Nothing's automatic. I don't remember changing my aperture. I don't remember changing the shutter speed or whatever, and nothing. I just remember the scenes that I took photos of. I wasn't present, I was disassociated, and going back through the photos was helping me remember what was going on, how I was feeling, what was happening at that time. And um, yeah, I, I don't remember taking a single photo. Hmm. I'm not surprised. And also you see through the camera a lot different than when you're seeing the whole big picture at the same time. It puts you closer, it's more personal. And now you're showing it 30 times, 40 times in a month seeing this stuff. How does that how does that work for you? How do you get through telling this trauma it all the time? Me, it all helps time. me process it, understand things better. And it makes me appreciate more that we were in this place where this horrible thing happened where hundreds were murdered and hundreds were kidnapped and it wasn't us. And it makes me appreciate that. Yeah, but you have survivor's guilt, you said. I have guilt that I'm the last person these two men shared their happiness with and not somebody they love. That's what I feel bad about. You couldn't have known that. And in trauma and grief counseling, there's no association between what you did and them dying. But I remember looking at Ran, the man in the, in the hammock. I remember looking at him, he was so calm, he was so relaxed, he was laughing, he was smiling, he was joking. Not a beat of sweat, not even anxious, nothing even adjacent to those feelings. And I remember looking at him and that was the only time during the attack that I felt afraid Besides when we were in the field and I thought my friend was going to die and I blocked her body with mine. Those are the only two times I felt afraid. When I saw him and saw how relaxed he was because I could see he didn't feel how I felt. Well, maybe he was on many substances and it didn't bother him. I mean, I've been to a rave once, so yeah. there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of stuff going on. Oh, and, and people aren't in the right of, mind. I know a lot of people are on LSD. I met a guy, he's like, I thought I was going to die, so I took LSD. A lot of the kids, people, I say kids because I'm 62, but a lot of the kids who are there, I know that they're in treatment yeah. in Israel. Almost everybody. No? Almost everybody. I'm not sure people are aware of that. Like, we hear about the hostages and we hear about the soldiers. There's two groups of people, the people who are there who are affected by it, and the people there who are affected by it while on acid and, and mushrooms. Specifically, those two drugs, not even MDMA and ecstasy, those might have helped people, but the people who are on acid and the people who are on mushrooms, 
they are influenced and affected by it in such a way that they don't even know. Their body is still trying to figure out what's going on. Mentally, their brain is still trying to settle in, and they're, they don't know. My cousin you? is one of those people. My what about you? I took a half pill of ecstasy in the beginning of the night, and that was it. By the time the rockets happened, I was basically sober. But I'm asking, are you going, have you received counseling? Do you I, want I counseling? Three, I have three therapists. I have one who specializes in terrorism, one who specializes in people who are related to murder, and one who's just a normal therapist. In Israel? Two in Israel, one over Zoom. This is not something that a person gets over. No. This is something it, that you have to learn to live me, with. Part of me, it's going to be part of me forever. There's no getting over anything. There's no getting over breakups. There's no getting over deaths. None of it. It's all with you forever. It's just you're pushing it further and further back. You said you had a rough childhood and this was something that you were used to. Did you want to tell me a couple of what that looked like here? Yeah, I grew up in Tobacco, Queensway and Royal York in the late 90s, early 2000s. A lot of crime there, dead officers being found in the ditch. We had a few break-ins, I've been pepper sprayed, you know, building a restaurant in the street that we lived in was, had a drive-by, you know, two girls murdering a guy with a hatchet. I really, not a safe area. So, you know, that's what I grew up around. I grew up with, you know, anti-Semites around me. I grew up with, like, Italian kids down the road used to pick on me for being a Jew and I'd beat them with a stick. Etobicoke was not a good place. Etobicoke was not not a safe place, and my dad was like a pretty violent guy. So I grew up with those feelings and those chemicals in my brain of fear and trauma. And that's why you survived partly in Israel too, from I luck. Able, I was able to recognize. You, you knew when it was time to get out. How did you choose which pictures and videos you're going to show and what you left out? Because we saw some dead bodies, but far away. I, the photos I show, the portraits that I show, are the ones who are only people who I know what happened to them and the people who I engage with the most who I know are alive. All of them are alive except for two. Maybe maybe three or four, but I don't only because I can identify those other two people. I have no idea. So you got permission from them too as well to use this? I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. They're happy they're happy with me to share it. And what didn't you put in? There's many photos that are just group photos. It's like, I took a photo because it's a nice photo. I said hi and bye, and that was it. There's nothing behind it. It's just a nice portrait of people having fun. That's nothing that I think is worth it. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know their story, their experience. If I did, I would have shared it as well. The videos, most of my videos are us driving by, driving through the field, looking for a way to go in a panic. Not really interesting to see, but it's still, it's an important thing to see, but it's not... There's, not, there's no substance to it. There's nothing... It's just people in a car panicking and driving around other people in cars panicking. Dust. Um, you know, there's videos I was driving down the road past abandoned cars. I didn't film a lot. I didn't film most of the bodies we saw. You know? But the two videos I show of that one highway, and I think those are the most impactful because they really give you a sense of the urgency we had and the panic and the fear we had and what was going on. You see the bodies and you see the men responsible for it. Has Israeli authorities uh, asked for any of your footage for prosecution? I did, I did, a, I did a, an, an interview with like, the IDF and they got all my photos and videos. Now, you're making Aliyah, you're 26, or you made Aliyah 26. Yes. You're not in uniform, as you said. I am exempt from the IDF because of my Crohn's. Ah, okay. So I would, I, if, even if I couldn't do the IDF, I would make sure I'm not doing anything that's even remotely adjacent to having to carry around a gun. I'd put myself in the press department or some, some desk job, something safe. You know, you were talking about the cars, and I wanted to ask you, are you aware of what Zaka said this week regarding burying the cars 
that are in the fields that have been abandoned because there's DNA in there that they can't get out and they don't the, know the, recovery the remains. Yeah. I found that maybe, maybe you can send it to me. so powerful. It's the first time Zaka's ever done anything like that. They have rows and rows of these cars. But it's also like the first time so many people have been executed in such a personal manner. Right. But I'm wondering how that sits with you. Is that something, like when you hear this story that I'm telling you? I don't like the idea of sticking hundreds of cars in the ground. I think it's bad for the environment. Um, I'm not a religious person. I don't think the cars are going to do anything for anybody. I don't think, I don't think it is, I think it's more for them. I think it's more of a thing, for, I think it's more of a optics. Um, okay, so you mentioned that you have sponsors. Tell uh, me a little so bit about how you're, because so you have to make a living, right? So when I say sponsors, I don't mean, I don't mean I'm getting money from it. I mean, these two people started this organization, Faces of October 7th. Yeah. And it's all funded by them in donations, pays for my travel, my, my food, where I'm staying. And are you done? When's your last sort of speaking engagement? So it's supposed to be December 13th, December 12th. And then you're going to do what Israelis do and they, after the army, they go and do a big trip. Maybe. If I can afford it. I'm unemployed now. I don't have a, I've only ever done photography and I no longer have a camera and I don't have an apartment because I no longer have a job. Where's your cameras? My, my, my Nikon is gone. It was, we fled the car from gunfire. It was in my lap. It fell out. I didn't notice. I only realized when we got back to Tel Aviv. So the cost of my life is $10,000. I, I didn't know and, that. And there was hundreds and hundreds more photos and videos on that camera that will never be seen. And I went back with an interview with CNN and I made CNN help me look for it. Nothing that even looked like a camera. I'm so sorry to hear that. So that's one of the reasons I said yes to this is to fill my time while I try and figure out how to find work when I go back to Israel. Because now I have to find work with a resume that says photographer and nothing else. What will you do besides the speaking engagements with the photos and videos that you have? Have you thought about a documentary, a book, a uh, traveling display? I mean, this is soon. I really don't know. I really have, I have no idea. If I wanted to do anything like that, I have to, have, I have to find everybody again who's in the photos. Because I yeah. have so many messages and contacts now that I have to, I have to re-find them all. I have to get a permission to do so. Yeah, of course. And then, I really don't know. Most of the time I don't share my photos. <laughs> so, I'm not sure. I'd, maybe maybe a photo book with like my presentation, uh, each page a photo with a story next to it. I think that's a smart idea. You're meeting a lot of Canadian students and they ask you some questions. You also met with American students. What is surprising, from to, the most surprising to you, the things that they want to know? Um, most of them just want to know how I'm doing or, you know, if I plan on going back to Israel. That's the question I get asked the most. Are you going to go back? It's always yes. Yeah, I do plan on going back to Israel. Don't you have to now? Because, like, you're doing that. Or you can stop. You can pause. Well, you made Aliyah, so you have your old plan. That's waiting for you. I, I plan on going back anyway. All my friends are there. People I love for are there. I would never stay away. Okay, um, I want to thank you for this extra time, and now um, I wish you good luck in thank everything you. you need. I appreciate it. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Shai Klein's continuing to California this week for more speaking engagements. Then he'll decide what to do next. As for his October 7th photos and videos, he's hoping to publish them in book form and to go back to photography as a career, despite losing his professional digital camera, 
lost and left behind in the frantic rush to escape that day. It kills him that there are hundreds of photos on it of people with photos that show them happy before the terrorists arrived. He wanted to find them and gift the photos to their families. He's already done this with the pictures he did manage to salvage from his other vintage Konica film camera, including photos of two partygoers who did not survive. If you want to learn more about Shai and see some of the photos and videos, the link to his Instagram page is in our show notes. It's also linking to an Israeli organization that sent him here. They are affiliated with a group that helps victims of trauma Several Canadians were murdered at the Supernova Festival, including Ben Mizrahi from Vancouver, Alexandre Luc from Montreal, and Sheer Georgie. 22-year-old Tiferet Lapidot also was killed there. Her father, Harel, is Canadian. Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.